Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. David Leonhardt has done just about everything at the New York Times. Today, he writes The Morning, the Times' flagship AM newsletter. Prior to that, he was an opinion writer, a reporter, and a podcast host. He's also won a Pulitzer Prize. And now he's written a new book. Ours was the shining future, the story of the American dream. Leonhardt's book examines modern economic history through the ideas of the New Deal's architects, labor leaders like George Meany and Walter Ruther, and their intellectual opponents, conservatives like Milton Friedman and Robert Bork. As Leonhardt tells that story, he says the Democratic Party has made a politically risky leftward turn away from blue-collar voters and towards highbrow progressive culture warriors. And he has a warning for Democrats. Their recent successes may be an illusion. I don't think the Democratic Party should feel comfortable about where they are now and feel like they can just write off the working class voters, including the Latino and Asian American and black working class voters who have drifted from the party in the last five years. At the heart of Leonhardt's history of the rise and fall of the American dream is a story about how Democrats ceded the loyalties of the working class to Republicans by not paying enough attention to the average American's concerns about crime, immigration, and economic progress. It's also the story of big ideas that both parties embraced, like unfettered free trade with China and permissive immigration, that Leonhardt argues haven't lived up to the promises made by their architects. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. You're pretty critical of the influence that, this is my phrase, not yours, but, uh, uh, you know, elite uh, progressives have on the Democratic Party right now on a number of hot button issues like crime, immigration, and, you know, maybe you can add a few to the list. And so much of what you're, you're writing about echoes some of what happened in the 60s. So how would you describe this problem, if, if you see it that way, for the Democratic Party? Talking about current politics yep. and all of this history, uh, I assume you were revisiting because it can tell us a lot about what's going on right now with the rise of Trump and the problems that uh, Democrats are having. So how would you s- describe the contemporary scene here? I don't know whether you've ever seen that. Easy question. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Solve American politics. I don't know whether you've ever seen that four-quadrant chart that I think is the best single explanation of American politics. So it's got two axes, one uh, economic views and one social views, and each dot represents you know, a voter in a huge national poll. And so you've got a whole bunch of people in the quadrant who are to the left on both economics and social policy. Those are obviously Democrats, right? And then you've got a whole bunch of people who are on the right on both economic and social policy. Those are Republicans. And then you've got the other two quadrants, the people who are left on one issue and right on the other. 
one, right? You often hear people say, I'm a social liberal and a fiscal conservative, or at least you did in the 90s. It turns out that is by far the most empty quadrant in American politics, right? That's a quadrant where you have a certain number of affluent people. The much more crowded quadrant is the quadrant of people who are economically to the left and socially to the right. So think about someone who really doesn't want Medicare cut, but also believes in pretty broad gun rights, right? Those are, in many ways, the swing voters of American politics. They're not the only swing voters, but they're the largest group of swing voters. Joe Biden tries very hard to reach voters like this. Barack Obama tried very hard to reach voters like this and and was more successful than many people realize, more successful than John Kerry or Hillary Clinton. That's why he became president and they didn't. But large parts of the Democratic Party and large parts of institutions on the left that have very loud megaphones, right? Parts of the media, Hollywood, higher education are very socially left on a whole bunch of issues. And not only that, but draws so many red lines that if you have any different opinion on this issue, you're a hateful and ignorant person. And I really do think it turns off large numbers of people. And so obviously, a lot of these are really hard issues because they're identity issues, right? Questions like, how old should a child be when they can have surgery related to gender? Like, that's a super hard question. But I think what's happened is, is if you look at polling, many people feel like, wow, liberals in this country treat that as not a hard question. And they say, if you have one view, you're ignorant or hateful. But actually, most Americans have more complex views. There was a progressive group that did some polling in Texas to try to figure out why Latinos in Texas moved to the right uh, in 2020. And this was a, a big thing. It's part of why Republicans did better in the House and Trump won Texas relatively easily. They cited two issues among others. One was immigration. Latinos in Texas were uncomfortable with the democratic approach on immigration, which was not to talk much about border security, not to be concerned about reducing flows of of undocumented immigration. And the other was COVID, that they thought Democrats didn't care about reopening the economy. They didn't care about reopening schools. And so I guess if I had one piece of slightly glib advice for the Democratic Party, it would be As a party, you spend too much time listening to the views of white people with graduate degrees and not enough time listening to the views of people of color who don't have four-year college degrees. And if you spent more time listening to the latter group, you would end up being significantly more moderate and open-minded on a lot of these cultural issues. And I think you could build a bigger tent. So let's talk about the case of Biden. I think you could argue in most Democratic presidential primaries, the kind of candidate you're describing as uh, having the sort of sweet spot politically is usually closer to that candidate. In other words, the Democratic candidate of the white educated elites usually struggles in a Democratic primary. I think that's slowly been changing as these numbers uh, change. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren versus Joe Biden. Elizabeth Warren is a classic candidate who's going to do really, really well with the most educated Democrats in a primary. Typically, uh, it's not enough to win, although the numbers are getting a little bit more in their favor every cycle. And I guess the question with a lot of the, the diagnosis of the loss of first the white working class, and now as you point out, it's bleeding into uh, non-white working class voters, this bleeding from the Democratic Party, they're still at parity in this country. We're still a 50-50 country. And so what do you, what would you say to people who say, um, 
yeah, this is all okay. This is a different coalition for the Democratic Party. Yes, it's less working class, but the numbers are still there. And that the most important issue for Democrats right now is abortion. That's that's an issue that, that's not going to be in that sweet spot of the quadrant you were dis- describing, and that you can actually win and govern and keep a majority with this very, very different coalition. Yeah. To take the meat of your question, yes, this version of the Democratic Party can indeed sometimes um, win the presidency. Maybe even, you know, with a significant frequency win the presidency. But what I would say is the following. First of all, in 2020, it won the presidency with the one candidate who pushed most against this version of the Democratic Party, right? Joe Biden was the one who most sent the signal of, I'm not one of these elites, right? And yet, um, he barely won, <laughs> right? And not just that, but I think it is very difficult for the Democrats to put together the kind of coalition they want to have to really change policy in this country with the current version of their party. I mean, y- you tell me the right number, Ryan. I think there are about 20 states in the country in which the Democrats roughly never win statewide elections, including states that they thought they really yeah. would be competitive in now. North Carolina, Florida, Texas, right? With the notable exception of Sherrod Brown, Ohio, Iowa. Well, I didn't even list the, the most conservative states in the country. So Democrats are basically never winning statewide elections, almost never in these states. And I don't think that's where the Democratic Party wants to be. What that means is that, for example, there is almost no abortion access in those states because the Democratic Party can never win elections. And so, yes, it is true that this version of the Democratic Party is not doomed to lose national elections. But when you combine the ways in which the system is tilted against the Democratic Party because of the structure of the Senate and the Electoral College, uh, among other things, with the fact that even in 2020, running against a deeply unpopular Donald Trump, running with a candidate in Joe Biden who moderated some of the upscale nature of the Democratic Party, it barely won and it still hasn't figured out how to win in many, many states. I don't think the Democratic Party should basically feel comfortable about where they are now and feel like they can just write off the working class voters, including the Latino and Asian American and black working class voters who have drifted from the party in the last five years. You have a fascinating chapter about immigration and its history and basically advocating for trying to talk about this issue without being accused of being anti-immigrant or racist and that the discussion is very, very hard to have. And not that long ago, it was a, a little bit easier to talk about. So just unpack that for me in terms of you know one big issue that I think you think is harming Democrats and how talking about it in a new way might be helpful. So- uh, in that chapter, I tell the the history of immigration, and the thing that most struck me is that the people who passed the 1965 overhaul, LBJ, Teddy Kennedy, others, they saw it as a great civil rights triumph, and it was a great civil rights triumph. They they changed the law that basically had overwhelmingly have the system admit Irish and and English and other Western European people and overwhelmingly excluded anyone else and excluded disabled people, excluded people from countries where people have dark skin. And they got rid of that system. And that was a great triumph. In the process of getting rid of it, they repeatedly promised that they were not changing the level of immigration. They were just changing the mix. I document quote after quote where they say, you know, Anyone who says this is going to lead to an increase in immigration is wrong, and that is an unfair accusation. 
And in fact, the law's authors were totally wrong about that. It led to a huge surge of immigration. And I tell that story because I think it's important to recognize that the immigration system we have was sold to the American people partly on false pretense. I'm not suggesting that a 1965 law drives immigration politics today. But when you look at polling today, you see that the Democratic Party position is unpopular with swing voters, including many Latino voters. As I mentioned, it's part of the the Democratic Party's problem in Texas. And so I think what happens is when this upscale version of liberalism, what Thomas Piketty has called the Brahmin left, looks at immigration. It sees this idea that, hey, if we let in huge numbers of people from around the world, we can improve their lives. And that's not necessarily wrong, but uh, it's not what our laws say. We do not have laws on the books now saying that we just are going to allow millions and millions of people to come every year. And I think what many voters hear when they hear Democrats talking about decriminalizing the border and extending benefits to non-citizens, and really Democrats have gotten incredibly uncomfortable talking at all ever about border security, right? Which is extremely new. Barack Obama talked about border security. He talked about deporting people who broke the law. And if you go back to his 2008 convention speech, I know you covered that campaign very closely. He said, when undocumented immigrants get a job, it undercuts the wages of Americans, except Barack Obama said illegal immigrants. Now, I actually think we shouldn't use that phrase. I don't mind illegal immigration. I don't like the idea of calling people illegal. But the Democratic Party has moved so far left on an issue in such a short period of time. All the polling suggests that most Americans recognize that immigration is complex. It involves trade-offs. We have to make decisions about who we admit and who we don't. And yet, much of the left in this country has adopted a position that Milton Friedman, the great conservative, also adopted, which is maximal immigration. Would you compare this consensus from a previous era uh, on immigration as similar and how maybe misguided it was, in in your view, to the consensus on China in terms of or what was promised did not live up to expectations? Yes. I think trade has probably had a bigger effect on, on wages in many communities than immigration. So there are subtle differences. But high levels of immigration does tend to move voters to the right. We see it all over the world, particularly when they think it's, it's happening outside the legal system. And I do think those are similar. And another thing that's interesting about that is A world without borders, right, a world in which you can have free trade and free immigration, that really is describing the neoliberal ideal, right? I mean, that's what Milton Friedman talked about. Even most unions, especially the service unions, if I'm not mistaken, have embraced the uh, progressive view on immigration. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, you're right. And I think what's interesting is asking, is it really actually the progressive view on immigration? For a long time, progressives in this country, Barack Obama... Bernie Sanders in an earlier era, a Philip Randolph, um, who's a major figure in my book, Samuel Gompers, Barbara Jordan. They said, actually, having very high levels of immigration is a gift to companies because it allows them to hold down the wages of workers. That was the argument of the left, right? And what I'm really struck by today is that both free trade and very high levels of immigration are neoliberalist positions in any definition, right? World without borders, let markets rule. And the American left in in the United States today has really revisited 
how successful those trade policies are. And I would say as a journalist, I've also revisited how successful those trade policies are. I, I thought they would turn out better than they did. But the left has actually gone further to embracing the laissez-faire neoliberal position on immigration. And I think it often is based on an assumption that immigration has no trade-offs, either economic or political. And I really do think immigration has trade-offs, and it's important to grapple with them. Do you think the issue is power, as you've, you've talked about, and interest group power that um, keeps the Democrats wedded to this position? Or do you think it's more about the problem that RFK was trying to solve, um, which is that because you had Wallace out there uh, using coded language and Nixon using coded language, and now today you have Trump uh, making anti-immigration sentiment core to the Republican Party, that there's a, a fear among Democrats to moderate their view on immigration in any way because it, it sort of um, opens them up to the criticism of, oh, you, you sound like Tucker Carlson and, and Donald Trump. So that keeps Democrats boxed in a little bit in how they talk about yes, it. Yes, I think it's more the latter. I mean, I, Trump's policy and his words on immigration were so vicious and hateful that I understand why people would say, we're going to run absolutely as far in the other direction as we can. I mean, it's a little bit like COVID, right? Where Trump played down COVID in ways that were deeply anti-scientific. And, and I think it led a lot of liberals to go so far in the other direction that they were in favor of keeping schools closed for a year which almost or more, which almost certainly seems to be a mistake. I mean, my reading of the evidence exaggerate uh, actually how effective mask mandates are, right? Masks are quite effective. Mask mandates, for a variety of reasons, are not that effective. Uh, and I think there's something similar with immigration. I mean, Donald Trump broke a lot of people's brains, right? <laughs> and and I and you know, to some extent, you could say he broke the whole country's brain. And I guess what I would say is, I think it's really important to try to assess evidence in a way that doesn't wish away the the parts that are a little bit convenient. And look, don't let Donald Trump dictate your political views, right? Look at an issue yourself and think about it and, and don't just decide you're going to go as far away from any view that he has. Make a decision. Make a Trump independent decision. The book is about the American dream and it's organized in these two parts about the, the, the rise and the fall. And so just tell us about how you organized it briefly about what the history is that you were trying to capture here and, and why you wrote it. It's of the first half of the book is the rise of the American dream, and the second half is the fall. And then I end on a more optimistic note than the fall might suggest, which I'm sure we'll get to. But That's I, true. I should have pointed that out. The ending is very forward-looking and optimistic. I call the book a biography of the American dream because the American dream is one of these concepts that everyone's heard of, like a famous person that everyone's heard of. But the backstory of the American dream... I think is more fascinating and layered than many people realize. The, the term was invented in a 1931 book, which is pretty remarkable. 1931 is the Depression. And it wasn't invented ironically. It was, I mean, it was literal. It was optimistic. And a historian named James Truslow Adams described it as the most important contribution that the United States had ever made to the world. And he described it as that American dream of a better, richer, happier life for all our citizens of every rank. And even though he coins this phrase in a very dark time, and he acknowledges that it's a dark time, the decades ahead create the most prosperous, largest middle class that the world's ever known. And I want to be clear, American society had horrible problems in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Above all, just really terrible racism, government-sanctioned violence, terrible sexism, 
religious bigotry. And in many ways, life wasn't nearly as good as it is now. But what was different about that era is things were getting better quite consistently. So during the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, incomes rise even more rapidly for the poor and middle class than the rich. The white-black pay gap fell. The white-black life expectancy gap fell. And so while any attempt to create a version of that economy today would have to be radically different because the world is radically different, I nonetheless think there are clear lessons from how the United States created broad prosperity during those decades that are relevant to today. You just hit on something that I think is a hallmark of your book and, and your, your writing in general, which is that you deal with a lot of fraught, complicated uh, subjects with the nuance of a historian trying to not in any way paper over the dark legacy of, of that period, but also not throwing out everything that was good and that, and that, that we learned. And um, I, I think it, these days it's very hard to strike that balance. So if, if you were condensing your history of the rise, what are the, the three or four big things that we can learn from that era of the rise that are um, important to understand today? So I say three main ones. The most important is political power. Zach Carter, in his great biography of Keynes, says, John Maynard Keynes, the British economist, says that Keynes viewed the economic history as predominantly a political story. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, economic history is not only a political story, but it, but it is in a major way a political story. And during the 1930s and 1940s, basically, masses of Americans, particularly working class Americans, particularly Americans who joined unions, got political power through those unions. And in the 1910s and 1920s, unions lost almost every battle that they fought. And essentially, if the government uh, allows companies to do whatever they want, companies can almost always prevent unions from forming. And that's what happened. Uh, they can fire the workers who are trying to join unions and make up excuses for why they're doing it. They can refuse to recognize the union. Only when the government essentially steps in and, and plays the role of arbiter can unions form. And that happened. And you see this incredible surge of unionization in the 30s and the 40s. And not only does it help workers win larger wage increases, mostly at the expense of corporate profits, not economic growth, which is an important point, but it also basically creates this political coalition that elects the Democratic Party five times in a row to the White House. And the Democratic Party is the party of the two parties at the time and still, still now that is more friendly to unions. And then the other two, and I won't go as deep on those, are corporate culture. I think for two corporate main culture, okay. corporate yeah. culture, yeah, I I think for two main reasons, corporate America and the politicians it backed, who were mostly in the Republican Party, basically became okay with the idea of a higher wage economy. At one was that they realized that that unions were here to stay, uh, and they needed to work with them. They still pushed back against them, but they didn't try to destroy them. And the other thing was a lot of corporate executives got really scared about whether American capitalism was actually delivering enough of a result to keep the American people happy. And I tell the story of Paul Hoffman, the CEO of Studebaker, who said, hey, we need to build an economy that works better so people don't turn to fascism as they have in Europe or communism as they still were in the 1940s. I don't think the corporate leaders back then were better human beings than the corporate leaders now, but they did behave differently. They behaved less selfishly. George Romney returned a bonus. Yeah, I was going to say, you have the example of George Romney, who advocated for a $225,000 pay uh, limit for the employees of his car company. Yeah. 
including himself. So when his bonus put him over it, he went to the board and he said, I know by statute of my contract, I should get this bonus, but I don't think it's healthy to have anyone making so much more money than our workers. I mean, you, can you imagine a CEO doing that today? And then, Well, not only can I imagine, but as you point out, uh, a lot of similarities, a shocking number of similarities between uh, George and his son, Mitt, but that's not uh, a place where Mitt uh, adopted his father's beliefs. Exactly. And the reason I pointed out is I really do think both George and Mitt Romney are admirable people. I really do, right? And so it's yeah. not that George was inherently a less selfish person than Mitt. It's that they operated in different cultures. It would have been bizarre for Mitt to return money. Right. And, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing these corporate leaders do is, you know, top marginal tax rates were 90% and 70%, and they did not organize their political lobbying around trying to cut those way, way down. That would change later. And then the final factor is investment. In those decades, we really were investing in the future. We were investing in roads. We were investing in scientific research. We were investing in education. I mean, look at the University of California system that gets built up. It's this just remarkable. And not My just, alma mater. Your alma mater. And the Cal State <laughs> system too, right? It's just, I mean, you experience the education there. It's just an amazing education that was open to huge numbers of people. So those are the big three. Political power, which I think is the most important, a more patriotic and less self-serving corporate culture, and a bunch of government investment um, that was oriented toward the future and, and really trying to do things that the private sector didn't do. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Let's talk about some of the, the politics of the rise era and trace um, the history of where we are today, especially the change in the Democratic Party and the, the key moments where it goes from what you just described as the, the party of the working class to what we have uh, today, where Democratic presidential candidates uh, no longer win the, the working class. A lot of the book is about this split between uh, both fi financial elites and cultural elites and the working class in the Democratic Party. I was really struck while working on this when I dug in to the history of the 1960s, how many echoes there are with today. Today, you really see the Democratic Party um, continuing to lose working class votes. And, and in recent years, not just the white working class, but, but also working class votes from people of color, Latino, Asian, and uh, lesser, but still a couple percentage points of African-American. Um, and I just was struck again and again by the similarities. So just to tick off a couple, and then I'll put a larger frame on it. I mean, you know, in the last several years, we have seen there was a clear rise in crime. It now appears to have leveled off, but we're not back to where we were. And many people on the left responded to this rise in crime by basically trying to deny it, by saying it's not that big a deal, it's a creation of conservative fantasy, the media is sensationalizing it. But actually, when you look at the data, there was a really meaningful increase 
in crime over the last five years or so. And the exact same thing happened in the early 1960s. Crime started to rise around 1962. And I went back and I was reading, there wasn't that much coverage of it in what would be called the mainstream media. And liberal publications like The Nation and The New Republic denied it. I mean, basically, they ran articles where they had the word crime or the word increase in quotes as if it wasn't happening. And that was just one example. Um, the Vietnam War was another. Look, the Vietnam War was an unjust war, I think. And I think the college demonstrators, including my parents, who who pushed to end it, were doing a very good thing. But I also think the tenor that the war movement took on often crossed into the idea that the soldiers, who of course were the kids of the working class, not college students, were the bad guys in that. And the idea that the American flag was something to be derided rather than respected. And people in working class communities were really turned off by this. And so there's a lot of nuance here. There is no doubt that race and racism in particular played a major role in the Democratic Party's alienation uh, of working class people without question, right? And it's really important to be clear about that. There are a large number of voters, particularly in the South, who once the Democrats embraced civil rights, they were never going to be able to win. Um, at the same time, there were a substantial number of voters who were actually winnable to the Democratic Party. And yet the party, whether it was on Vietnam, <clears throat> whether it was on crime, whether it was on all kinds of issues, the party basically was disdainful of a lot of the views that working class people had and alienated them as a result. And I think we see sort of a replay of that. And to me, for anyone who says, come yeah. on, isn't it all race? To me, the right. clearest the sign of this is Robert F. Kennedy, the original, not Jr. I mean, he was no, very culturally what, conservative. Sorry. And I want to talk about Kennedy and Wallace because this is where you really present a very nuanced view of politics that is directly relevant to what we're, we're all talking about and writing about today with Trump. So your discussion of Bobby Kennedy, uh, Wallace, Nixon, that whole era it has so many echoes with the rise of Trump. And you try and untangle how much of the backlash against uh, Democrats was about race and was about other things. And I think that there, as you kind of alluded to a second ago, there is a tendency to attribute racism as the sole and only factor. And so I, I want you to sort of just tease out when you were sort of studying this era, what we miss if uh, we only look at it through one lens, how you know how important was race? Why shouldn't we think that that was the end all be all of that era? And it's as simple as that. What's the nuance that you're trying to bring to your study of that period? I think Bobby Kennedy is a fascinating figure here, and I want to be clear: I'm not saying had he lived, everything would have been different. He might not have even gotten the Democratic nomination, and if he had, he might have lost to Nixon. So we just don't know. But his approach is really important. And here's the place to start for anyone who says, well, isn't this just all racism? Robert F. Kennedy was the most popular white politician in black America. He was mm -hmm. unsparing in his description of racism. He was embraced after MLK's assassination by the King family in a way that no one else was. He helped get um, the body back to Atlanta. He constantly in his speeches talked about the role that racism played in, in harming black Americans in this society. So he wasn't tiptoeing around this subject. And I think that's part of why so many liberals remember him with such fondness. At the same time, he treated more culturally conservative working class Americans with respect. 
Gene McCarthy, his main rival for the Democratic nomination at the time, wouldn't say the words law and order because he thought they were code words for other things. And Bobby Kennedy said, that is madness. If we don't say the words law and order and we leave them to the race baiting politicians, they're going to get many of the voters who worry about crime for reasons that aren't connected to race. And Bobby Kennedy ran in the Democratic primary as the law and order candidate who had been attorney general and who was tough enough to take this on. In all kinds of ways, he tried to say, look, I'm not going to talk down to working class voters. I'm not going to treat all their concerns as ignorant. I'm going to engage with them. And he gave speeches in which he said, law and order is a real problem. We need to cut crime. And you know what else is a real problem? Racism in our society. And we need to address that as well. And I think I think that when you think about the Democratic Party today, there's so much of it that basically takes the Gene McCarthy approach. They say to working class people, let's forget about all your views on social issues, you know, whether it's COVID lockdowns, whether it's, you know, any number of things. Just please focus on economics. You agree with us on economics. And I actually think that's disrespectful in a way. People are full people. They have both economic views and social views. Um, many wealthy people vote against their economic interest when they vote for the Democratic Party. And I think RFK showed how it is possible both to take a firm stand for civil rights and also not to talk down to culturally moderate and conservative voters who are open to voting for a Democrat. What's the key moment in that history where the Democratic Party starts to lose at first the white working class. And um, if they could go back and reverse something, that would be the moment that it happened. I mean, in the 1960s, the vast majority of the population did not have a four-year college degree. Still today, 60-something percent of adults don't have a four-year college degree. And that, I think, is something that RFK very clearly understood, that, that arithmetic problem. But much of the Democratic Party doesn't try to do this. It's a little bit frozen. And in 68, it's a three-way race among Nixon, George Wallace, the segregationist from Alabama who's running as a third-party candidate, and Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's vice president. And it's a very close race, but Humphrey is hobbled by LBJ in Vietnam, and Wallace wins away a lot of these voters who had voted for the Democrats in the past, and Nixon wins the presidency. And then what happens is the Democratic Party, for a complex mix of reasons, chooses as its next standard bearer, George McGovern, who is an extremely honorable person, fought in World War II, actually was supportive of labor unions. But he adopts the political strategy of the new left and basically runs a campaign that is very easy for Nixon to caricature. Um, and it's an exaggeration, but it but it's based on real stuff as as being interested in the three A's, right? Amnesty for people who didn't go to Vietnam, abortion, and acid, meaning drugs. And I mean, McGovern just gets absolutely trounced. And the Democratic Party comes back in later years, but there really is a fissure in that period where the working class very much does drift away from the Democratic Party. And again, I think there are two fundamental reasons. One is race and racism. And I think the Democratic Party was always going to lose some of these voters and couldn't chase them without accepting racism in a way that the party really couldn't have and shouldn't have. But the second- As LBJ famously said when he signed the Civil Rights Act. Yes. But the second is- If that story is true. If, yeah, <laughs> apocryphally said, or maybe said. Yeah. But the yeah. second is all these other issues in which the party just wasn't really interested in listening respectfully and lo- trying to build a big tent. And that really struck me because I do think we've seen similar versions of that uh, today. One of the things that struck me reading the book is talking about the intellectual elites on the left and how 
that was not enough to uh, keep the Democratic majority going strong and that it alienated a lot of working class voters. But it opens up this opportunity for this new intellectual elite on the right. You write about, uh, you know, partly through the story of Robert Bork and the Gorsuch family and the Federalist Society and this University of Chicago school view of the economy and this sort of new uh, legal universe of strict constructionism. And so th these two movements that come out of uh, the right-wing academy merged with working class affinity for a, a lot of uh, sophisticated Republican uh, candidates like Nixon and Reagan suddenly takes off and takes over in a sense. And the Democrats sort of opened the way for this in, in, in your telling with the mistakes that they made in the, in the 60s and 70s and the sort of world we have today, correct me if I've got any of this wrong in terms of your narrative, is the one created by that period from uh, Nixon to Reagan. Yes. I found the rapidity of the change in the Republican Party's economic policy to be really remarkable. Yeah, that part is really interesting. And I found that at history worthwhile to revisit and very eye-opening. Thank you. I mean, in 1976, the real conservative movement in the Republican Party, including the economic movement, so this is Ronald Reagan and it's Milton Friedman on an intellectual level, are just really frustrated. I mean, Ike, Eisenhower, Nixon, and Ford all govern as economic moderates who accept the post-war consensus. They don't try to take tax rates way, way down. They try to restrain unions' growth, but they don't try to crush them. They don't overhaul antitrust policy and let companies get really big. So the oil price increase in the 70s creates a level of economic frustration that causes Americans to say, things aren't working, let's try something new. And it's only then that the big conservative movement in the Republican Party is able to take over the party and sell Americans on the idea of, we know you're angry, the problem is government. We are going to create a laissez-faire economy that will deliver much better results for all of you. Those are the very clear promises that they make in the late 70s and early 80s. So just as Ike sort of consolidated the the gains that Democrats made under FDR, your view is that Clinton, Obama essentially consolidated the gains of the Nixon, Reagan, Bush, uh, first Bush era. In other words, the world that was created out of the, you know, 50 years ago wasn't really rolled back in any meaningful way by the occasional Democrats, even two-term Democrat. Tell me if I've got that right, and and why is that? I do think that Obama governs in some ways significantly more progressively than Clinton does and is more skeptical of the Reagan era than Clinton was. I mean, there's that famous point in the 2008 campaign where Obama says to the anger of Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, he says that, you know, Ronald Reagan changed the direction of the country in the way that Bill Clinton didn't. And it's clear that Obama wanted to set out to change it in the other direction. So I think you can have a debate about Obama, but I absolutely agree that Clinton is the kind of 
Ike figure of the Democratic Party who essentially accepts some of these changes. And I, what are I, the ones that look the worst in hindsight from your point of view? Yeah, that's a good I tough mean, question. I was about to say, China. To, I think yes. I, look, I'm sympathetic to some of the things that they did. I mean, the Democratic Party was really unpopular. They had to make some changes, but they really did accept a lot of these moves toward what is sometimes called neoliberalism. And look, you look at the things that Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush promised on China and trade. They just look really bad in retrospect. I mean, Clinton famously said about China, yeah, good luck controlling the Internet. It's like stapling jello to the wall. Well, it might be, but the Chinese they Communist Party has, yes, has found a stapler that manages to keep jello on the wall. Um, and you look back at the promises of how, you know, this is going to lead to more prosperity and Americans will learn to compete. And then you look at the academic research that's been done on the China shock and how it's just devastated communities. And I just think those promises um, have not been borne out. And you also look at the fact that Democrats from these earlier eras didn't prioritize labor unions. So I think it's really interesting to think about the academic research is very strong on the enormous value of labor unions to workers. That's a, like a, a reinforcing relationship. Yes. And I should say... It depends who you are in terms of helping the economy. I mean, labor unions do redistribute wealth from corporations and thus the relatively affluent to a greater number of less affluent people, right? So I can understand why if you're affluent, you might not like that redistribution. But so despite this, labor law reform, making it easier for workers to join unions is the legislative agenda item that always falls below the line of what Democrats actually do. LBJ passes nearly the entire Great Society agenda for domestic policy, Medicaid, uh, Medicare, um, war on poverty, all this stuff. But the thing he doesn't fight that hard for is labor law reform that could make it easier for people to join unions. Jimmy Carter has a choice between prioritizing the Panama Canal Treaty and labor law reform, and he chooses to prioritize the Panama Canal Treaty. Clinton doesn't really push it. Uh, Obama pushes it somewhat, uh, but the votes aren't there with Democrats in Congress, maybe, or maybe they just didn't push it enough. And Biden promises that he's going to be the most pro-union president, and I think in many ways is and reflects some of the shift we're now seeing back in the Democratic Party, but he doesn't have the votes to get it passed. And so weirdly, I think that should be a reason for optimism about the ability of labor unions to reduce inequality. It's not like we we as a country have passed a lot of laws that make it easier for people to join labor unions, and yet it, it just hasn't worked. The government hasn't passed a law like that in many, many decades. So it's not something that's irreversible on the union front. If you, you think that given that some of the current trends and Biden's historically different approach to, say, the auto worker strike, which happened after I think you wrote the book, that's that's still a sort of low hanging fruit, or maybe not that low hanging. Maybe it's high in the tree, but uh, that that's something that the Democrats should be focused on. I don't think increased interest in unions is sufficient. I really do think it'll take a change in the law. Um, and some of the things that the Democrats have proposed seem like they can make a major difference. They just haven't passed things like the PRO Act. I really do think the same way Obama made healthcare reform a huge priority, right, and then passed it. I think to make a big difference here, a future Democratic president would have to say, hey, when I take office, this isn't going to be my sixth priority. It's going to be number one or number two, and I'm going to get this passed. So, David, at the end of your book, you talk about two movements 
and what might be encouraging and discouraging about them. But I just want to end with your thoughts on um, movement on the right and on the left and what you see as uh, encouraging about them. Let's start with Republicans or start with the right and conservative populism and what might be a good thing for the country writ large. I know you're not writing this book as as, as a partisan. And the prospects for what you call a, a more inclusive uh, progressivism. So I do see signs. I don't want to exaggerate how big the signs are, but there are signs of a more genuine version of conservative populism. I'm not. What would, fr- it, yeah, what would it look like? That you mentioned that the usual touchstones on this. You know, Josh Hawley, some speeches Marco Rubio has given, some of the the newer think tanks who are trying to. Um, rid the Republican Party of sort of Milton Friedman style economic policy. What's your take on how serious this stuff is and whether there could be a similar moment where suddenly the stars align and this sort of overtakes the Republican Party in a way that it certainly hasn't yet? I would say that I think there are both economic and political arguments for it. So it does remain on the, the fringes of the Republican Party. And so what would it look like? Well, it would, I think, have a skepticism of very big companies because conservatives are supposed to be skeptical of concentrated power, right? And, and That I think, seems to be happening. Yeah, that, that one I see in, in a very tangible way. Yep. But maybe not being translated into policy and law, though. <laughs> No, but, but these rhetorically things, for sure, these things take decades, right? I'm not yeah. saying it's guaranteed to happen, but the fact that it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't, right? Bork had to sell his views that big companies were great for a very long time. So I think that's one example. Um, I do think trade is another example, right? I mean, you can imagine a much more kind of uh, U.S. focused if Trump hadn't, you know, uh, corrupted the term. You could even you, imagine it as America first, right? Trade policy, right. and you do see that. You see say, folks saying, "Hey, look." And the Biden administration is actually pursuing a lot of that stuff. Hey, we shouldn't allow oh, absolutely. China yeah. to have access to this. I think it's interesting that a whole bunch of conservatives, including Marco Rubio, have signed a statement saying that they think labor unions are important. I mean, you could imagine labor unions as conservatives thinking about them as an important community institution, right? Like um, helping to bind people together. But I'm just saying the idea of a culturally conservative party that's skeptical of huge companies, I don't think that's out of the question. Will it happen? I have no idea. Will it take over the Republican Party? It seems unlikely, particularly given the importance of the Supreme Court, and you see no interest of this in the Supreme Court. On the other hand, you know, you would also see conservatives investing in infrastructure, and Biden's infrastructure and semiconductor bill did get Republican votes. So it's not just rhetoric, although I share your skepticism about how much it'll translate into policy. And then I guess your other question was about a more inclusive version of progressives. Well, yes. So what does that look like? I think the biggest reason that I emerge from this book with optimism is that I understand why many Americans are so cynical about politics today. But actually, grassroots political movements have an incredible record of success in this country. Think about how rapidly the marriage equality movement succeeded. I don't think it's on anywhere near the same scale of importance, but think about how rapidly the marijuana legalization movement succeeded. (laughs) You know, go back earlier, the disability rights movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement. I've talked about the incredible successes of the labor movement in the 30s and 40s. That was, these were grassroots movement. And there are examples on the political right as well. You and I talked about the kind of growth of economic conservatism as a grassroots movement. Um, You know, post Roe v. Wade, the anti-abortion movement was absolutely a grassroots 
movement um, that worked decades to change policy and influence government and all that. And yeah. so I really do think grassroots politics can be effective. And I think that you do see some more interest in this kind of economic progressivism on the left, primarily through the interest in labor unions. And it might be strongest now in more elite settings like publications and think tanks that are unionizing. But yeah. that matters, right? Because these are the same people who are going to write papers and provide leadership for the kind of progressive movement and then might turn their attention more toward, hey, how is it that we can make it so people at Starbucks and Amazon can also organize? And so... I think in Joe Biden, we see a president who's been willing to revisit a lot of the, the neoliberal economic policies of the past on trade. He's tried really hard to invest in the future of the country. Uh, he talks more forthrightly about the importance of unions. And so, again, I'm not predicting it's going to happen. But I do think it is possible to imagine a progressive movement in this country that does really focus on lifting the living standards of most people and tries to win them over. And, and someone said to me as part of my book tour, hey, what would you say to someone in college today who cares about these things? And I said, okay, well, I'm going to assume that person is progressive because most people in college are. And if they're interested in politics and they care about the economy, I would say, I think your generation has an opportunity to build a version of progressivism that is more focused on lifting the living standards of ordinary people and is more inclusive and could really succeed in places that the recent versions of progressivism have struggled. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Good luck with the book tour. Thanks so much, Ryan. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thanks to Max Miller for field producing in New York. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Tell us what you think about the show or who you'd like to hear on Deep Dive. Email me at rlizza at politico.com. And please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>